Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Udangdamang sanggang masami So we lost the week or so we've been practicing a meditation retreat and various people have been giving reflections on the themes of called the five hindrances which are the basic obstacles that we experience primary obstacle we experience in meditation and actually these aren't just sort of you know trivial things just to brush aside to get on with the real practice they are the real practice at one stage they definitely are the kind of real practice because in in meeting these and and understanding these and dismantling or transmuting these you just develop a lot of skill and you need to develop this skill the skill basically developed is called the seven factors of awakening or in seven factors of enlightenment which is um, mindfulness investigation energy or persistence since I keep going with it, uh, quality of uplift or rapture or kind of buoyant state, calm, uh, collectedness, concentration, and equanimity, which means your mind becomes very even and uh, balanced and wide, spacious. And these are so. These are so. In order, just in order to to master or to transmute or transcend these hindrances, these, these are the kind of qualities that have to get engendered, and they get engendered at this particular place where we find ourselves struggling. So it's a very important place. It's not a kind of irritate. It's, of course it's very irritating, disappointing when you find yourself dull, sleepy, which is one of the hindrances, or carrying some kind of niggly grudge, which is another one, ill will, feeling bad-tempered and sulky, fed up, you know, or sometimes more than that, or some kind of things tickling your fancy, images of things you rather fancy, and you're kind of getting this continual thing kind of fluttering through the mind, exciting, and you're trying to, much more exciting than watching your breath, well there's not much, it isn't more exciting than watching your breath, maybe watching paint dry is a little less exciting. So you have to, you know, in order to get over the sense of wanting to be excited, you know, that it requires a lot of deepening, you know, because the aim is not really about excitement, but a kind of deepening where you can experience a sense of buoyancy. But first of all, it means you've got to get over this this attraction to the glossy surfaces of life, you know, the, the flavors, the sense, the visual appearances, uh, the, the signifiers of things that seem attractive or lust arousing or really desirable glittery things, sexy things tasty, luscious things and these are the things that start popping up in your mind and of course this tends to make you very fidgety and restless so that's another another hindrance and a whole lot of those makes you doubt there's anything worthwhile in doing this practice altogether (laughs) which is another hindrance you know what am I sitting here just going crazy for why not do something more useful with my life that's considered a hindrance. So these five set up a formidable kind of smoke screen that's continually 
throwing the mind out and uh, you know but actually so we can think they're just a pain well they are a pain but they're also also to be understood hey this is good stuff because if you get skillful at mastering these you really can have a lot of strength and resources mm. you know, the sense resources are called the one way of expressing them is these enlightenment factors and you can't you know, the sense what they really mean is that these are what's required for liberation. So, the mastery of the hindrances is is exactly the same as establishing resource for liberation, and you can't master them without meeting them. And glory be, they don't they don't hesitate; they march right in. You know, so you don't have to wait very long before you meet a few. <laughs> Saying, "Here's your chance for enlightenment." But they don't seem like that. <laughs> They're generally saying you can't meditate, you know. So it's important to get that sense of, of kind of right view about it. And uh, um, they, they take us in, you know, because you really have to understand and get penetrating the source of these, you know, the, the confused energies, the um, confused values, you know, valuing things that I really have little value, um, getting focused on things that are just not really that important, you know, getting irritated about things that aren't really worth getting in a flap around, speculating around things there's no point in speculating about, you know, judging, forming views, all this sense in this which is trying to find some ground for happiness and security and being me, you know, getting a getting on a winning ticket, getting some solid ground. And, uh, you know, who doesn't want some solid ground, some territory, some place where they feel comfortable, a nice room, a door to close, a feeling that this is what I am, you know, being seen in an agreeable way, you know, being valued or respected or at least not abused. Who doesn't want that? Mm. And who doesn't want to feel happy? Good, pleasant, obviously. But of course, you recognise in life that you know those things are pretty shaky. Hmm? Praise and blame, fame and disgrace, and so on. People form perceptions and ideas of each other, impressions, and so on. Be pretty damaging. And uh, so, it's telling me that um, somebody told me that President Bush, they're now making toilet paper with his face on it. It's a sign of uh, what you call a protest vote in American terms. Very tangible, so you can actually express your opinions about the president whenever you go to the loo. <laughs> well, you can see someone who could, in some sense, be seen as the most powerful person in the world at the top of his game is also <laughs> just toilet paper. <laughs> that could be a difficult perception to, to uh, master, couldn't it? Imagine having your face printed on toilet paper. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like that. (laughs) 
The point is, of course, that, that uh, you know, there's this tremendous uh, wish for this, uh, but we can't find it. You know, somebody's always going to misunderstand, or maybe dislike, or misinterpret. People always, you know, getting confused and hurt by each other, and we lose favour. Or we find fault with ourselves. You, know, you can't find a satisfactory perception of yourself, which is the m- most difficult thing. Mm-hmm. The point is that really this sense of firm ground and um, satisfaction is not to be found in these places. It doesn't mean there isn't any. Really the place of where we're most um, settled is in process of non-attachment. We begin to recognize the clarity of the mind, the the joy of the mind, the stability of the mind. You know, in fact, these enlightenment factors are the best kind of ground one can have. You know, be, because they're not really personal possessions. They are, and you know, it doesn't matter. The point about these, the beauty of it is, that there's no competition. Everybody can have some. You know, if I got some, it doesn't mean you can't have any. <laughs> it's not dependent upon whether you're. You know, male or female, old or young, what nationality you are, rich or poor, intelligent or not educated, or whatever it is, you can please, you know, everybody can have some. So that's great, because a lot of other ground is very severely contested over, isn't it? But really, in Dhamma practice, it's to really, you know, keep remembering this is the only thing really worth going for. The rest of it is just, so what, you know, at the end of the day. Big deal. <laughs> and the uh, things we have to deal with fundamentally are not really, you know, other people, people's, but really the hindrances in our own minds. You know, if we can clear these, then what, what other people are or doing isn't really a pressing concern. It's really the aversion or the craving or the doubt or the restlessness agitation in one's own mind you can get past these so it makes it very you know, it's very tangible hindrances they're not some esoteric doctrine it's not kind of like ultimate radiance we're looking at just the kind of grudgy dull ill will (laughs) Or a kind of fluttering, skipping mind that won't settle anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the Buddha said, actually, you, you can boil it all down to, to one one thing, one thing that's both the the uh, the problem and and how uh, how contradicting that or or reversing it is the solution. It's attention. And he said things like, you know, when the attention is, is skewed or is not appropriate or is not properly balanced, then it's food for the hindrances and it starves the enlightenment factors. But when attention is properly balanced, fully endowed, you know, appropriate, skillful, then it's, it starves the hindrances. It, it, it takes away their food and it nourishes the enlightenment factors. Uh, it's called appropriate attention or skillful attention or deep attention. Yoni Soma Nisikara. Uh, 
And this is the kind of attention that's a very useful thing to keep bearing in mind because it, you can you can practice it at all kinds of levels. You know, it means like just notice what you want to put your put your attention onto. Like, what do you want to read? What do you want to look at on the telly? You know, it's like that. You know, what are you going to do that actually supports rather than dis- rather than distracts or makes you feel depressed or makes you feel lustful or something like that. You know, just sense restraint. Mm. Or, or putting your attention onto things that are calming or gladdening or uplifting. Yeah. And it's, you know, so you've got that choice. We can say, you look at the world, you think of people like, you know, Mao Zedong or Hitler, and you think, oh God, what a, and Zimbabwe and Rwanda and all these terrible things. The world's a complete disaster and a mess. Or you can look at things like the Buddha or Jesus or. Nelson Mandela or something like that, Dalai Lama, oh, those humans are great. What do you want to put your attention on to? What what really supports you? Hmm? You can come to a a monastery and sort of look at somewhere that's kind of empty and open and quiet. Or you could go to a, you know, discotheque or something. What's worthwhile? What helps? Hmm? So you can look at it like that. The obvious thing is just what you want to bear in mind. So that acts as your almost the the preliminary foundation for mindfulness, because it's saying there are some things you don't really want to bear in mind. I mean, you know, maybe sometimes it is good to bear in mind the poverty and tragedy in the world to evoke a sense of compassion. But if bearing it in mind just makes you feel depressed and hopeless, maybe that's not a good thing. And you can see how you can look at the same thing, you know, poverty and, and tragedy in the world, and with appropriate attention it could evoke a sense of compassion and eagerness to help, or with inappropriate attention you just feel overwhelmed and depressed. You know. So, you know, it's bearing in mind, or mindfulness, is just something that sustains attention, but the appropriateness of the attention depends on something like What's it doing to you? You know. So the Buddha doesn't say, you know, he doesn't say, don't ever look at this or don't ever think about that. He says, don't look at things that cause lust to arise. Doesn't mean don't look at bodies or don't look at nude bodies even, but don't look at something that's causing that to arise. Are you getting overwhelmed in that way? You know? But you can look at the same thing and you get a sense of dispassion or interest or compassion or whatever you know? so really that's the point is the basic you might say the mood tone or the even the intention of your mind so one of the factors of appropriate attention is called intention intention isn't just a del- deliberate considered wish you might say to use the jargon term it's where you're coming from you know if your mind is hungry for for sense, sensuality, you know, or, or whether it's fault-finding, grudging, you know, irritable, fault-finding, picky kind of mind, you know, or whether it's uh, vindictive. So he says, you know, you should spare three, three qualities, uh, 
the non-harming and the non-cruel or critical or vindictive and the non-sensual so you see it's the things that then you know when you actually can then place those or begin to keep referring to that quality in those qualities those bases in your mind thinking things through from that perspective even then you're starting to establish this flood or this flow of skillful mental intention you know because this is the intention that's going to liberate you know. i don't think any anybody got liberated is developing more harmfulness spitefulness and craving <laughs> Yeah. So we generally think, no, no, I think it's the other way around. And of course, these things are not necessarily that that deeply etched. You know, they can be kind of subtler qualities, uh, subtler uh, aspects of those features. So then, also, what is important to bear in mind with with appropriate attention is contact, which means what are you actually where where are you making contact with things? Yeah. And the primary uh, place when we meditate, we make contact through through the body. As you ground your attention in your body, you begin to sense within that sense of being in your body. You begin to sense the 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 kind of gnawing hungriness, or the crabby, tight constrictiveness, or you, or the kind of um, you know um, all these different energies moving around. So you're bringing your attention into a place where the contact you're having is, is, is causing the factor of investigation, mindfulness and investigation to arise, the first to enlightenment factor. You start to put it somewhere where you can actually pin it right down and really get into it, really examine it. Hmm? So it's not just kind of flittering by, you know. Sometimes you wish some of these things would flitter by. You're sitting there in meditation, you know, six hours, seven hours a day. Jeez, you know, this stuff isn't fl- it's supposed to be a Nietzsche. It isn't doing its changeability very much, you know. But in a way, that's kind of what meditation is about. It's about looking at the places where the thing just keeps repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating and, repeating and this nagging thing. So you, eventually, you've got to investigate it. You have to, and you have to find a place to. to to be able to do that. So mindfulness, meditation, mindfulness of the body is a suitable base to contact, to come into contact with these hindrance energies in a way that's potentially liberating because you can investigate them. You can inquire into them. Yeah. And you've got to be kind of frank and fearless about it. There's no point fudging up with a whole load of, you know, I am this, I am that, this shouldn't be happening kind of stuff. Yeah, so we throw that one out the window. Mm-hmm. So, you know, me meditating on retreat, Ajahn Suchito, Abbot of Chitta's monastery, you know, 32, 33 years, is sitting here feeling a bit dull and groggy, pain in my back, not wanting the pain in my back, feeling slightly tense about that. Occasionally, kind of getting this something feels like it's squeezing a, a rubber band around my head. Um, <laughs> coming out of that, just trying to hold it all up, and you know, 
Feeling the energy kind of going a bit spongy, drifting out, pulling it back again, trying to breathe in and out, something kind of feeling I've just lost my body again, pull it back up again, you know. This is about the first hour or so, you know. And sort of things doing, uh, you know, mind getting a bit, you know, edgy about that. And something stabbing, stabbing down, stirring up some sexual energies. You know, goodness me, leave me alone. And something else kind of comes in. And then feeling some object, something I've got to do, sort of drifting into the mind. So, shut up, will you? <laughs> and yet, uh, you know, it's, but essentially, uh, it doesn't go very far. <laughs> It doesn't kind of really stream out into into magnified uh, realities. It just kind of just keeps bubbling, kind of nudging up. It's kind of not doesn't flow into full form, full flight, flood of perceptions and images. Just this kind of turbulent stirring, and just sitting on it, sitting on it, sitting and spreading awareness over it, and um, appropriate contact. That is, rather than contacting the the delight of the image or the irritating quality of the image or the the importance or the urgency of the little thought in the mind, just contacting the the energy in the body. You know, when it's going sluggish or it starts to crackle or it starts to swing out or it feels certain parts of the body light up. You know, you feel suddenly very tense in the head or contracted in the chest or something sinking in the belly. And just keep spreading the breath energy over the whole body, spreading it out, straightening it, just with this sense of not trying to even you know change anything, but just to get more fully and evenly aware of the whole body and let that and persistence, you know. So some things I may spend, you know, maybe three days with and that's nothing much. Really, three days is nothing much. You know, a particular perception in the mind or an energy in the body. Three days is pretty fast, I think. Um, you know, because actually the process of contact itself is not such a sure and easy thing. You know, we think contact is just like you put your finger on something, that's it. That isn't it? <laughs> Contact is the you know is the impressions that arise. It's like a shape changer, you know, it's like Proteus. Proteus was the god who, whenever you touched him, he continually changed shape. So he became a ram. He held onto the ram, became a snake. Held onto the snake, he became a fire. Held onto the fire, he became a screaming baby. Onto the baby, it became a thundercloud. He just kept holding onto it, it changed his shape. And eventually, if you held onto it long enough, he gave up. He said, Okay, game's over, what do you want? And that's kind of what, you know, so are you holding a ram or a flame or a cloud or a snake or a screaming baby? What are you holding? It changes all the time. Contacts like that. It's not. An effect. It's a, a mental or an impression that arises. Mm-hmm. 
You know, when, certainly when you, you sit in meditation retreat, living with a group of people, you get this sense of, you know, people can seem uh, wonderful or irritating or disappointing or confusing or completely out of it or right on the mark or whatever. You just get this kind of continual um, kaleidoscope of impressions occurring. And you're trying to find something you want to find, the right one, to really nail that person she is that. Got her on my screen. Know what to do with her. She is that. I've judged. <laughs> She's now indicted or whatever. And then, oh, that doesn't fit. Okay, try this one. You know. And eventually you can't fit anything. Yeah. And the shortcoming, of course, is that we tend to buy into one particular perception and say, that's who she is. She's one of those. Or he's one of those. He never does this. He, you know. So you get kind of authority projections or um, sexual projections or, you know, he's taking over or she thinks a lot of herself or, you know, whatever. You know, no. <laughs> what are you contacting? You know, apart from the mirages that arise in one's own mind. That's what we're contacting. And you've got to hold those because exactly those are the things that are causing the hindrances. They are, in a way, um, they're the objective factor. If you believe in them, you don't see the hindrance. You think somebody else is irritating, you know, or somebody else is fantastically good looking, or somebody else is this, that, or the other. No, it's a hindrance in your own mind. It's a, it's a take, it's a perception in your own mind that's doing that. So, it's right there that we begin to see the kind of energies that build up tension, suffering, craving, disparagement, contempt, irritation, divisiveness, or the dissolution of those. Because even having the perception of somebody else has been fantastic and wonderful or radiant luminosity is a bit of a hard number to lay on somebody. Probably easier than having your face on toilet paper. I think I'd sooner have that one myself. Radiant luminosity rather than, you know, something to wipe your bum on. <laughs> but still, you know, being radiant luminosity all day long to other people could be a bit tiring, you know. <laughs> when you just want to sit quietly and have a cup of tea or over a walk or read the newspaper or something if you would expect to be radiating luminosity. <laughs> oh, you're supposed to be this. You're supposed to be ultimate compassion and wisdom. Why aren't you doing this? Good. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of projection, isn't it, we do to people and things and places. You know, this monastery can seem like, you know, joyful paradise or a gulag, you know. <laughs> People running, come running into the door, how wonderful, then run screaming out of it two years later. <laughs> Shape changer. <laughs> Where's it ha- What's happening, you know? So you just kind of hold these. These are very difficult to hold because we're dealing with mostly evocative 
shape change is incredibly evocative. This is, these are called sankharas. These are formative energies, and they form our realities, and they're steeped in our own karma, our own dispositions, our own irresoluteness, our own absences, our own fearfulness, our own you know things we've been, had difficulties with, our in, things we've been beaten up when we were kids, so we've got a lot of fear energies, or we were deprived, so we've got a lot of hunger energies, or whatever, you know. So these these things are then right there, f- formative. They, they they form these perceptual realms that that then we find ourselves struggling with. So you want to kind of get to the root of those, and uh, appropriate place of contact is finding it in your body, not in your mind, or really where your mind and your body meet. Because you're not just kind of sidetracking the whole thing you have to you know know them and feel them without getting caught in them and that's the place where the mind and the body meet because if you just weren't dealing with it that wouldn't do it you know just kind of skip out somewhere go into some trance it doesn't do it but where the mind and the body meet you can sense this thing welling up and yet you've got a basis it gives you an appropriate place of contact where you can just hold, spread, and develop qualities of persistence and you know, investigation. You know, and gradually through those two facts and mindfulness, the sense of uh, the mind starts to get agile and starts to get buoyant, starts to develop some rapture or some uplifted senses. Uplifted, like it starts to get bright, and this really is the turning point when the hindrance energy starts to be less than the enlightenment factor energy at the place where we experience a sense of of uplift, you know, slightly lifted up state. You want to do more of this, you know, and that's the hinge, that's the place where it starts to turn the other way. You might say that's our first. It's not exactly the first mark. The first mark is mindfulness investigation. The first place you feel you've really started to, you know, get your head above water. And then from there you can kind of base your energy, your attention on the sense of clarity and and joyfulness and that mind can calm down and then these other factors come in of concentration and equanimity and so on. So contact, contact, intention, and attention, the three together. So when we do mindfulness of the body, often we use the breathing, sense of breathing out, gives, it helps, the, just the rhythmic flow of it helps to counteract the tendency to get locked. You know, one of the ways that uh, we get trapped, you get kind of caught, is you, you feel yourself getting locked into something. It's like your head gets stuck in, in something and you're kind of thrown around by it. So you've got this breathing energy that keeps kind of 
in and out. You've got something there that helps to keep things flowing. And it's suffusive. So the, the energy that goes with breathing, with prana, you might say, or the chi, has, will tend to spread over the whole body. And uh, first it doesn't seem like very much because the whole body is often quite contracted. So you, as you start to sense this, uh, the energy that comes along with breathing, the main theme in meditation is you sense that, you get a firm sense of touch with that, and you start to widen or spread it over your whole body. And this means that bearing that sense, a kind of like a certain lightness, a certain uh, vitality, you might say, bearing that in mind, being mindful of that, you then start to widen your focus to include, say, your arms or your chest, or anywhere particularly that feels maybe uh, constricted. Often the chest feels constricted, or the head, or the back, you know, or sometimes you get it in the belly. Because this is the place where all this, uh, these, these um, afflictive, these sankharas, have their bodily sense. You know, not just the mental sense, they have a bodily sense. So you can feel them in your nervous system, and they affect the whole body. So I was in this retreat, I spent uh, several days um, just practicing with something in, in the centre of my back. You know, which first of all, it just feels like you've got a bit of backache, well, it's nothing new. You know, so you sort of sit up straight a bit, and wriggle a bit, and a minute. Do some exercise, stretch it a bit. Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, that's true, it's true, but that isn't it either. <laughs> and then actually focusing on this sense, I could feel a kind of a, a, a like a, a, an energy there. And then, what's that? And notice how uh, more, my mind felt more irritable. Just a bit more irritable edgy, you know, touchy, tetchy. You know. uh-huh. Could it be the two are related? You know. So I was just focusing on that. And then the theme generally with right intention is of you know, noticing. So if one gets a, a sense of ill will, then you, you are. Because skillful attention is always accompanied by goodwill, or at least no ill will. So if something, you've got ill will in your mind, for whatever reason whatsoever, you know, well, certainly sympathise with that, but it's not a suitable basis for, right, for appropriate attention. Appropriate attention always does not have ill will in it. So, you can feel the sense of, okay, so just being, accepting the ill will, or the irritability, and referring it to this bodily sense. You know, do the two, are the two related? And then noticing, yeah, they are. As I started to notice that, it, it, it kind of glowed a bit more strongly. You feel it glowing. So then just basically not having to go into the stories of why, you know, this is irritable, or this isn't good enough, or so-and-so is a bit of a pain, or whatever. Just think, hmm, what's that? The feeling widening attention across the whole back, across down from the, the neck down to the tail, 
across the whole back, then um, lengthening and widening across the shoulders, and just being with that, breathing, 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 being with that for a you know considerable period of time. And in being with that, then the mind tends to want to, you know, it doesn't always want to be with it, it skips off, so you keep coming back. Or it gets impatient, it wants to find something out, it wants to make something happen, it wants to release something. No, no, that's not it. Just keep back being with it. Just have appropriate attention, not desire to get rid of, not the need to understand, not, you know, my meditation practice isn't working very well. No, that's not appropriate attention. Appropriate attention is just bearing this in mind with no ill will and just sustaining that without ill will and without um, spinning off. And after a while it sort of feels just a very point when it, the, the shape changer, I could almost feel the shape changer suddenly, okay, enough, and stopped. It stopped bringing up this kind of turbulence, it just, okay, you've done enough, and it stopped. It stopped, and then the body dissolved. It wasn't like, you know, bingo, flashes of light, just suddenly the whole body um, dissolved. Didn't disappear, it just became something like a um, plasma, you might say, or fluid, or, you know. I realized that most of my body is ill will. <laughs> You sit there, you think you've got a body. Of course, you can feel it's kind of hard edges and tight spits, and that's just that's just an ill will body. (laughs) But you get so used to having it's not deliberate hatred; it's just the feeling of, oh goodness, you know, like a compacted. um, What do you say? You know, it's certainly not an intention of ill will. It's a feeling of. of uh, shock, you might say. A shock, a sense of shock. So the whole body is actually in some perpetual, low-grade sense of shock that makes it edgy. And that's what, you know, she sense the body when it's not like that, feels like something liquid, fluid, um, quite light and radiant, and body of rapture. And then there's that body... There's another body which feels like it's got hard, spiky bits in it and tight muscles and, uh, and broken bits in the bones and things like that and jangly nerve energies in it. There's that affliction body. Yeah. And you can live with the affliction body for so long that you, you kind of, oh, that's, my bo- that's it, that's the body. You don't even notice it till you have to sit with it for a week. You know. And stop spinning off. Stop running off. You know, you don't want to sit with an affliction body. You know, so you run off. Mind keeps running off. You see, sit with the affliction body, the pain body, uh, and hold that till the, the shape changer changes and it gives up. And you realise that your very body itself is just a f- fantasy. 
changing mirage. It seems a kind of strange thing to say when we look around and see all these you know, shapes and things. What do you see? You see shapes. You think, that's, you think that's a body? You think a shape is a body? You think you see a body? What happened to the spleen? I don't see anybody's spleen. You know, they tell me you've got the spleens. I don't see anybody, any spleens. What's a body? Something, is it a visual thing? You try and find your own body, the one you could probably most you know, closely recognize this really is a body. What is it? Pressure, heat, movements, vibrations. Hmm? Not the kind of thing you really go out to town with, is it? You know, or falling, I don't fall in love with somebody's heat and vibrations. (laughs) It's just the, it's elements like that. And you come closer to it, you recognize those elements are really just energies shifting and wriggling and pulsing, carrying these disturbances of withheldness or vacancies or imbalances. And then when they, you start to bear it in mind and appropriate attention without leaving the body, without dropping the body, without going to another body, your body releases. As it releases, your mind releases. Hmm. Your mind releases from the ill will, or the sense desire, or the doubt, Hmm. and the sense of self. This is the value of appropriate attention. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something you can take as a preliminary factor for what you want to bring your attention on to. Uh, yeah. You can bring it as a factor for what particular aspects of your mind, your psychology, your, your inner world you really want to bear in mind, how to bear them in mind, you know, what ones you really want to linger with, and even if you've got difficult ones like hindrances, then the aim is somewhere between you're not exactly going into them, but also you're not ignoring them either. And that's the subtlety of, uh, of meditation, in my opinion. Uh, is that it is uh, appropriate attention to the hindrances, not, not noticing them, no attention to them, nor is it inappropriate attention, but appropriate, skillful attention to these hindrances. And they are the, if you hold them, the shape changer can eventually give up and say, okay, you win. Here's the door opened up. Here's some freedom for you. And freedom is much more than just um, a sense of, you know, happiness or release, but a real Freedom has a wisdom aspect to it. You recognize that really, on one way of looking at it, you don't have a body. <laughs> you know, you, it's, not, it's not a big deal. It's, uh, 
it's a, a formation, it's a kind of, um, you know, it's something we can be in, but it's not essential identity or a, a finite thing. And that has its own consequences in terms of what your body feel, looks like, feels like, even its sickness and demise. So, you know, a practice like this actually has very, very far-reaching effects. Mm. Anyone? <coughs> <coughs> 